0: All right, well, if you have a Bible, if you turn to Isaiah chapter 6, we're going to read the first eight verses. We'll pray first. Uh, Heavenly Father, I just ask you, Lord, to have your hand on me, just enable me to say the words that will minister to your people that are here, to all of us, and uh, just bring conviction and encouragement, just whatever we need, Lord. Just ask that your hand will be on us all today, and you'll open our hearts to receive your word in Jesus' name. So Isaiah chapter 6. Beginning in verse 1, Isaiah writes, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and His train filled the temple. And above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings, and with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the post of the door moved at the voice of Him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. And then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Well, then flew one of the seraphim unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin is purged. And also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And then said I, here am I, send me. So some people, they don't like to get into quote-unquote theology. Well, this isn't going to be, hopefully, a theology lesson. But people don't like it. But theology just means the study of God. One of the most important things you're going to know and learn as a Christian is about the character of God. Because it's a fact that people, they will reflect the nature and character of the God they worship, whatever that is. So it's essential that we know what God is like. We talked about it Wednesday. We said we need to grow in grace and we also need to grow in the knowledge, it says there in in 2 Peter, of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we need to grow in that. We need to grow in the knowledge of God. We need to understand him. Jesus said in John 17, 3, he said that this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. And so Jesus, our Lord, himself said eternal life is this, that they know, that we know, that you know the true God. (laughs) We know who He is and who we're worshiping and who this God is that we serve. And so there is one fact. This is a fact. And the one word that is overwhelmingly used, more than all of them combined, to describe God is holy. And all the derivatives. It's used over 800 times to describe our Lord, His very being. It's His essence. It, in a sense... Affects everything else. His love is a holy love. His righteousness is a holy righteousness. His justice is holy. Everything about him is holy. Everything he does and everything about him being. It's the essence of his character. And Psalm 99 5 says, Exalt ye the Lord our God and worship at his footstool, for he is holy. That's who God is. Jesus, when he prayed in John 17, What did He call the Father? He called Him Holy Father. And how did He teach us to pray in the Sermon on the Mount? Matthew 6, He said we're to pray our Father who art in heaven hallowed. It's the word for holy. Holy or hallowed is thy name. I mean, that's how we should address and come before our God is to recognize His holiness. And it's what makes Him distinct from us. Now, we're to be growing in holiness. We can partake of His holiness. We'll talk about that. But even still, at our best day, and the best saint is not even close to Him in character and purity and holiness. Not even close. And Isaiah found that out. We just read it. So when he sees the Lord high and lifted up, and the angels and everything that happens there, what is his response? His response is, woe is me. I mean, this is the prophet Isaiah. I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, is the way it is. And Job, you read the end of Job, when God appears to him and reveals his nature, his character, who he is to Job, what was Job's response? In Job's 40, 44, it says, Behold, he says, I am vile. And it said at the beginning of Job, what did it say about him? He was a perfect and upright man, none like him in all the earth. And yet, that holy man, Job, his response when he sees God is, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer thee? He says, I will lay my hand upon my mouth. Similar to what Isaiah said. And so, when God is seen for who He is, man will take his proper place. Because when Job said he was vile, that word means to be insignificant compared to god when i see who he is i am insignificant i am of little worth there's nothing to me i'm saying that is the opposite of almost all of the preaching you hear today because it's all we're going to build up our self-esteem we're going to build up our self-confidence we're going to build up our self-worth and that is not the way the bible teaches things to be it really doesn't when peter when he caught by the jesus said Throw your net over there. He's like, we've been out all night, Lord, but nevertheless, at thy word, we'll do what you say. And he, they throw that net over, and it said the two boats bring him in. There was so much, the boats were beginning to sink, and he's looking at this great multitude of fishing. And here's what it says Peter did. He realizes there is somebody here that he's never seen before. And there's a holiness about this man. There's something about him that's different, because it says in Luke that he fell down at the sight of that at Jesus's knees and so here's how we know that he had to see there was something more it was more than that Jesus just had power there was something about his character because it says he fell down at Jesus' knees saying depart from me for I am a sinful man O Lord but I'll tell you when we get in that position and we recognize him for who he is that's where we're at, where God says, I can work with somebody like you. I've got you where I want you. Because he went on to tell Peter and the other disciples, fear not, from, from henceforth, thou shalt catch men. Now I'm not going to be catching fish anymore, but I can use a person like that. And that's what God wants. I got this quote from Calvin that I thought was good. John Calvin said this in his Institutes. He said, it is certain that man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself. So we don't know what we're like, it says, until he first looked upon God's face. This is the very beginning of Calvin's work. He says, look, you need to know about God, and that's how you know about yourself when you see him. That's what he says there. It is certain that man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face. For we always seem to ourselves righteous and upright and wise and holy. That's what we think about ourselves because we compare ourselves with each other. And he goes on to say, he says, this pride is deep-seated in all of us. And unless by clear proofs we stand convinced of our own unrighteousness, foulness, folly, and impurity, we must infer that man is never sufficiently touched and affected by the awareness of his lowly state until he has compared himself with God's majesty. When you compare yourself with God's majesty, Calvin's saying, you'll realize then who you are. And that's what we just read in Isaiah 6, in those different accounts. Never have a right view of ourselves without rightly seeing the God of the Bible. Have you ever been convicted by just reading the word or hearing the word preached to where you say, woe is me, I am undone? Behold, I'm vile, what shall I answer thee? That's what these men would say. Depart from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. Has that ever happened to you? Reading the word, hearing the word preached. So Isaiah here, he has a vision of God's holiness. And I'm saying by looking at this, let's see if we can capture some of that ourselves. By looking at what it has to say here. So what we have in verse 1 is this is when Isaiah is called by God to be a prophet. And verse 1 tells us when that happens. It says, in the year that King Uzziah died. And that's not something to skip over. He doesn't waste any words. Isaiah doesn't. And that's an important statement that he's made there. Uzziah had a long and prosperous reign. He was king. He started at 16 years old and he reigned over Israel for 52 years. And both 2 Kings 15 and 2 Chronicles 26, which is where you'll read about his life. It says that he was a good king and did that which is right in the eyes of the Lord until the end. So he was a great king, beloved by the people, but at the end it says he got lifted up in pride. Financially, he was doing real well. And what he tried to do is he tried to go in the temple and offer burn incense, which only the priests were allowed to do. And so God did what? He struck him with leprosy, and that leprosy never left him. So King Uzziah, he died a leper by himself. He couldn't go into the temple anymore. He's excluded from the house of God and was living in a house in isolation by himself. Well, like I said, he did a lot of good things for Israel. He restored the military brought it back to about to where it was in the days of David and Solomon, defeated the Philistines, built up the walls of Jerusalem, Agriculture, everything was going great. Dug wells out in the desert. They liked him. You think, that's 52 years. That's a whole lot of presidents we would have had in 52 years. they just had these people just knew this one king, and almost everything he did was blessed by God. So when he died, it was devastating to the people, and it was a great shock. Their world was turned upside down. Assyria as a power, is, they know it's moving on in there, and here they just lost this guy that's been guiding them for 52 years. So things were kind of in an upheaval at that point when he died, and it's kind of like what we have in America today. You can make a lot of things where we've got things a little bit in upheaval, right? We've got a president that's, he just put it this way, He's not like one we've ever had before. Our government, in all kinds of ways, is is just fractured and chaotic. And then you hear on the news things like North Korea. They supposedly now can send ballistic missiles into the United States. And the guy that's the president, I think he would if he really could get away with it. So we can really see what we're seeing here is that men that rule the world, they're frail, they're unstable, they're prone to errors, whether we're talking about King Uzziah or the people that are ruling the world today. That's the way they are. So this man dies. Things are upset. Isaiah's upset. He goes into the temple. He's probably mourning the fact that Uzziah died. And in that, God gives him a vision, gives him a vision. And what's he showing him? In the year the king Uzziah died, he said, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne. And what's he telling Isaiah? He's saying, listen, Isaiah, the throne may be empty in Judah right now, but God has never left his eternal throne. He is still sitting there high and lifted up. And that's what we need to remember. Rulers and kingdoms may come and go, but God is eternally sitting on His throne, ruling over the affairs of men, isn't He? He's high and lifted up. That's what it says. So what we have going on here, Judah from here on out is on the decline. And interestingly enough, right about this time, if not the same year, right around this time, really close to it, a little city on the Tiber River comes into existence called Rome that is going to grow and grow and come in power, and all of these things are going to move on. Judah's going to decline. Rome's going to grow. And it's going to grow until the time all these prophecies Isaiah has in his book are fulfilled in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the point is, God is on His throne. Empires are going to rise and fall. They do all the time. Assyria, Babylon, they're all here for just a short period of time, like America will be. They rise and fall. Kings come and go. The throne of Judah was vacant But what God said to Isaiah is, the Lord is sitting upon His throne, high and lifted up, and His train fills the temple. Now, if you notice, kind of as a side here, if you notice Lord in your Bible is a capital L and then lowercase letters, so there's two ways you'll see Lord in your Bibles. One is like that, like we have here in verse 1, and the other case is where it's all capital letters. So when you see all capital letters, Lord, That is for Yahweh. Okay, that's his name. When you see big L, little letters, like you have right here, that's his title. It's Adonai. And what is his title? What does that mean when you see this here? It means he is the sovereign Lord of the universe. That's what it's telling us there. So what's Isaiah seeing here? He's saying, I also saw the sovereign Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. And he says in verse 5 there, my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. The king, the Lord of hosts. And who is this king? Who is this sovereign Lord that he is seeing? Do you know who it is? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And do you know how we know that? You don't have to turn to it, but you can later if you want to. Over in John chapter 12, verses 40 and 41, John quotes out of Isaiah chapter 6. He quotes the part that talks about verses 9 to 10. We're going to this people here indeed, but understand not, and see indeed, but perceive not, make the heart of this people fat, and so on, verses 9 and 10. And after that, this is what he says. He says that these things, said Isaiah, when he saw his glory and spake of him and he's talking about the lord jesus christ so what isaiah is given here is a vision of the pre-incarnate christ and his holiness anytime god appears and he appears many times to people in the old testament he always appears as who as the pre-incarnate christ they'll see an angel the angel of the lord and they'll think they said i've seen god and i'm going to die that's who they're seeing and that's who isaiah is seeing sitting here high and lifted up So Jesus sat at the right hand of God in glory, in eternity past. That's what it says in John 17. He says, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. And after his resurrection, he says in multiple places in the New Testament, he has returned to sit at the right hand of God, which is where he is here, in his glory. That's where he is. Now, we have the account of Stephen, which I think is fascinating. Stephen sees him, and he looks up, and Jesus had gotten up off of sitting on that throne and was welcoming him standing. It just infuriated those Pharisees. Stephen's like, I see the Son of God standing at the right hand of God to receive me. But that's where he's at. He's sitting. That's what we're seeing there. Sitting there, reigning. And he's not only high and lifted up because he rules over the nations, but his holiness is what exalts him over everything that he has made. And one man says, you got to get this picture. This picture that Isaiah is painting here, this is an exalted figure, the glorious king of the ages, and his holiness, and what we're seeing here is manifested by his holiness, by his glory filling the temple with his train. It's an amazing sight that we have here. It describes robes, his train, that's his robes. A throne. These angelic beings, which I think it doesn't say how many. I think there's a multitude of them. These seraphim, all surrounding him, filling the majestic holiness of God. Isaiah 57 says, For thus saith the High and Lofty One that inhabits eternity, whose name is Holy. He says, I dwell in The high and holy place. He's so much other than us. And where he dwelt is so much other than us. But here's the thing about our God is he comes down, though, to the humble and lives with us. Because Isaiah, I didn't read the second part of that, but it goes on to say, he says, I dwell in the high and holy place, but with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit. You think about that. This God that fills the universe with His glory and is so holy that they have to cover their eyes, they can't look at Him, but yet He says He'll come down to us if we're humble and contrite and willing to walk with Him in a lowly way. Like I said, so that's quite a scene that Isaiah is describing here. Vast multitude of seraphims, and the word seraphim means burning ones, and this is the only place it's used in the Bible. Because everywhere else it talks about the cherubim. And they're not the same. But these heavenly creatures, they probably had this brightness, this fiery appearance, which is why they're called seraphims. And they're flaming, really they're just reflecting the glory of God, who they're right around. Continually crying out to each other, back and forth. That's what it says here in the verse. The one cried to another, verse 3, and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, and the whole earth, it says, is full of His glory. So what does it mean by holy? What does holy mean? I think there's two things. There's two meanings to this word that you get. And one means, we've heard this many times, it means to be separate, to be set apart, to be distinct. And there's a lot of things that are holy that aren't God. You have the Sabbath is holy, you talk about holy ground, there are things that are dedicated to God, set apart for God. But when we talk about God and say that he is holy, we're talking about he is distinct from us. He is like nothing else, nothing else that's made or anything else distinct from creation. It's his moral glory, his ethical purity, his righteousness, his majesty, his purity and his beauty. That is what makes up God's holiness. So that's totally the opposite from us as sinners, is what we are. He's so much other than us. He's not just a bigger us. He's not like you think of a good person. He's just a bigger one of that. No, he's totally other. And it also, the word for holy can mean a shining or a brightness. And that is what you get when you think about God's holiness and his throne and where he's at. 1 Timothy 6.16 says that God is dwelling in the light. We're saying holy has to do with brightness And a shining, it says he dwells in the light which no man can approach unto whom no man has seen nor can see. Like I said, the seraphim, they are sinless creatures. And his holiness, it says they have to cover two wings. They got six wings. Two of them are covering their eyes. They can't behold him. It's like us trying to look directly in the sun. You can't do it. That's what it's like. They cannot look directly at him. John says that God is light in 1 John. We're saying holy has to do with brightness. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So it's contrasting darkness or sin with God being light. Speaks of his moral purity, no darkness. And when Jesus was transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration, which we talked about in Mark, in Matthew's account it says his face, When they saw him, it did shine as what? Shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. So his holiness, his purity, his glory was veiled by the flesh, but at that point it all came out. And it was a brightness they couldn't look at. His face was like the sun. Is that the Jesus we sing about today on the radio? (laughs) The glory of holiness shining as a blinding light? So why did the angels at God's throne, why did they three times cry out, holy, holy, holy? Why did they do that three times? Some of these guys will say, well, maybe they were acknowledging the Trinity, but I don't know about that. The Hebrew language has no word for very or best or greatest or deepest, or they don't have all the superlatives that we have in the English language. So in Hebrew, when they want to emphasize something, they say it twice for emphasis. So in 2 Kings 25, literally the Hebrew will say gold, gold. But it will be translated as pure gold or solid gold. It does the same with silver. It'll say silver, silver. But it's just trying to emphasize that this is pure silver, solid silver. And they don't have any way of saying that, so they just use the word twice. Jesus would use that Aramaic expressions, when he wanted to emphasize something, how many times did he always say truly, truly? Saying it twice. Amen, amen is really what he's saying. So he's trying to emphasize something. This is the only place where a characteristic of God, describing him and his character, is used three times. So you never hear God spoken of as love, love, love or wrath, wrath, wrath but here you do have him spoken of as holy, Holy, holy. And Alec Motyer said this, he said, Holiness is supremely the truth about God and His holiness is in itself so far beyond human thought that a super superlative had to be invented to express it. And that's what's happening. There's no words to describe in the human language what they're seeing. When you see these descriptions that take place, even here, all he says is, I see the Lord, and he describes His train fills the temple. They cannot describe God in His holiness. There's no words we have for it. So they're saying it's to emphasize how holy He is. It's His nature. These angels are saying, holy, holy, holy. So you think about it. Gideon in Judges 6, and Samson's parents in Judges 13, both of them, when they realize, when it dawns on them, they have seen God, what is it that makes them afraid that they're gonna die? Is it because of his awesome power, awesome wisdom, or love? No, what it is is what? It's because of what Isaiah has here and what needs to happen with us. Because they're conscious of their sinfulness and of His utter purity. It's just like with Peter. That's what's going on there. Holy, holy, holy. And when His holiness is manifested in someone's presence, people shake, but so do inanimate objects. So look in verse 4. Look what it says there. When they cried, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Verse 3, the whole earth is full of His glory. It says the post of the door, the foundations, the lintels of the doorpost moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house, it says, was filled with smoke. And I'm saying earthquakes and smoke seem to be nature's reaction to God and his holy presence when it's given. That's <laughs> the way it is. Because in Exodus 19, 18, Israel's gathered and Moses had gathered them to Mount Sinai. God's going to deliver the Ten Commandments, which are just a That's just showing his holy nature, what he expects. And they gather there at Mount Sinai, and it says that Mount Sinai was altogether on a smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and the smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mount quaked greatly. So you have the same thing there that you have here in Isaiah. The mountain and the ground, it's quaking greatly. These people are gathered around here. And the Lord told Moses, you make sure they don't get within so close or they will die. I'll consume them. But you also have the smoke because of the fire in his presence that has come down. And that's the awesome holiness of God. Could you imagine being there for that? Could you imagine being at a mountain and trumpets are blaring and fire's coming down and smoke's ascending up because God has come down and all of a sudden the ground starts shaking like a huge earthquake? You picture being that? And then the voice of God gives all these thou shalt nots. And the people were like so in awe of the holiness of God, unlike today. They're like, Moses, you talk to him. (laughs) We don't want him talking to us anymore. We're afraid. We are scared. And Moses had to tell him, look, God's not going to kill you. Everybody has to be told that, that sees him. You're not going to die. Because even Isaiah, he says, I'm undone. Woe is me. I'm doomed. I'll talk about that. That's what he's saying there. Well, Listen, we weren't there for that shaking, but I'll tell you, there's one coming. It's gonna, the Bible says it's going to be even greater than that by far. If you would turn to Hebrews 12, let's, let's look at that beginning in verse 25 and it says in hebrews 12 25 it says see that you refuse not him that speaks meaning the lord for if they escape not who refused him that spake on earth much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaks from heaven whose voice then shook the earth that's talking about back in exodus mount sinai he says but now He has promised, God has promised this saying, yet once more I shake not the earth only, but He says, what else is He going to shake? Heaven. Verse 27, and this word yet once more signifies the removing of those things that are shaken as of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. And here's where He encourages us and warns us. Verse 28, wherefore we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved. Here we are back to grace again, aren't we? He says, let us have grace, because it's not going to be in and of ourselves, whereby we may serve God acceptably. How? With reverence and godly fear. Verse 29, for our God is a consuming fire. Wow. Bigger shaking's coming than has ever come, isn't it? Hadn't come yet, but he's promised it will come. So anything that's not solid, that's not grounded in the Lord, that's not stable, that's not grounded in trusting in His Word, He said it's going to be gone. It'll be removed. That's what He says, isn't it? And so we need to pray for grace that we can serve God the way He wants us to serve Him, with fear. Fear Him, this holy God we're talking about. Yes, He loves us, but I'm saying we also need to have a great fear and awe of Him, don't we? That's all through the Bible. You lose that, and you're in big trouble. So back in Isaiah chapter 6, so not only we read in verse 4 is the temple shaken at the presence of God's holiness, but Isaiah himself is pretty well shaken. Look what it says in verse 5, And then said I, Woe is me! for I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And how does he know that? He says, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So you think about it. What is it that's going to show us our sin? So was Isaiah given a vision of his sin? How did he realize his sinfulness? How did he come to the point where he says, I'm unclean, I'm undone? I'm a man of unclean lips. How did that happen? It didn't come because God showed him who he was necessarily, did it? He saw a vision of the Lord. That's what happened. And that's when he cried out. When God showed him his glorious holiness, he says, Oh, woe is me. That's how it happens. He's pronouncing a woe against himself, the prophet is. So he's just pronounced four woes on the nation back in the preceding chapter. If you look back there in chapter 5, look in verse 18. Isaiah five eighteen, Woe unto them that draw iniquity with cords of vanity and sin as it were with a cart rope. Look down in verse 20. Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Verse 21, woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes. They won't listen and prudent in their own sight. Verse 22, Woe unto them that are mighty to drink wine, and men of strength to mingle strong drink. So the prophets, they would either pronounce blessings or woes on individuals, cities, or nations. And Jesus, you read Matthew 23, came on really strong. Eight of them, you count them up. Eight woes. Jesus was a prophet. Eight woes against the scribes, the Pharisees, and the hypocrites. You say, well, I'm not a scribe or a Pharisee. Well, you might be a hypocrite. And he spoke eight woes against them. What is a woe? A woe is an announcement of doom. Ah, here he goes, Mr. Doom and Gloom. Well, I mean, I'm sorry, that's what it is. It's an announcement of doom. And Isaiah, here's the thing, when he sees the Lord, what does he do? He pronounces doom on himself. That's incredible, I think. He's saying, man, I'm undone. I'm doomed, I'm undone. And undone means to come unraveled at the seams. (laughs) Come apart at the seams. And that's what a vision of God will do to you in His holiness. I like what R. C. Sproul said. He says, as long as Isaiah could compare himself to other mortals, he was able to sustain a lofty opinion of his own character. But the instant he measured himself by the ultimate standard, he was destroyed, morally and spiritually annihilated. He was undone. He came apart. His sense of integrity collapsed. That's what happened. I didn't make it up. Isn't that what happened? That's his words. Woe is me, I am undone. I'm unraveling. I'm destroyed. I thought I was something. I know now I am nothing because I've seen him, the King of Glory. You know, I haven't actually seen the movie or read the book, but I understand in The Hunchback of Notre Dame, Quasimodo, who was the deformed hunchback that was so ugly, nobody wanted to be around him. But what happened was he comes face to face with this beautiful woman, Esmeralda. And here's what he says. He says, I never knew how ugly I was until I saw your beauty. And isn't that what we have here? We'll never realize what we are until we see God in his holiness, in the beauty of his holiness. And that's what will show us. We'll see ourselves as we truly are. And so what brought his ruin? It's his speech because he says, I am a man. Look at that verse five. He says, I'm a man of unclean Lips. You would have thought he'd have said, you know, I'm a man of unclean thoughts, or I'm a man that lives an unclean lifestyle. But he's convicted of his speech. And our speech, Jesus said, is what defiles us. Didn't he? He said that in Matthew 15, I believe. But those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart, and they defile the man. It's not what you put into your mouth, it's what comes out of your mouth James 3 6 says the tongue is a fire a world of iniquity and so is the tongue among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature and is set on fire of hell so what about your tongue here lately how has it been doing all of our tongues (laughs) you read Proverbs and you can get pretty well convicted can't you Talks a lot about gossip and backbiting and slander. And what about murmuring? What about angry speech? And thing is, we don't think much of it, do we? We think we're getting away with it. That's Psalm 50. God says, you sit there and you slander your brother, and just because you don't drop dead that minute, you think you're getting away with it. In fact, you think I'm cosigning everything you're doing, and God says, "Uh uh-uh, we're going to have a day of reckoning one time. It's going to be a day of reckoning. But that's what happened with Isaiah. And that's what would happen to all of us if we really took the word and what it says to heart. Oswald Sanders says, when one reads of the Puritans mourning over their sins, and because the Puritans, I'm saying, you read their writings, it's like, man, I don't know how those guys lived the lives they did. They were definitely holy people. But he says this, they would mourn over their sin. And he says, so either they were wicked men or... We are careless sinners. I thought that was good. See, they mourn over their sins. I mean, truly mourn. They're not just trying to work it up. He's saying either they're wicked men, which he's obviously saying they really weren't, or we're careless sinners. And the implication is we don't do what they did. All of us, do we? Do we really take our sin and our speech and God's holiness that serious? So Isaiah says here, he says, Woe, I am undone, I'm a man of unclean lips. And he says, I live amongst a people with unclean lips. But thank God it didn't end there, did it? It didn't, because there is grace. And that's verses 6 and 7, because he's saying, I'm done, it's all over, I'm doomed. But it wasn't, was it? That's the way he felt. If it wasn't for God's grace, that is where we would all be. But look in verses 6 and 7, it says... He's in the dust in verse 5, Isaiah is. But then it says, Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this has touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin is purged. And that's saying his sin was taken completely away. And that word for purged is really the word for atone, for atonement. He's saying, as soon as that coal, and where was the coal taken from? The altar. What happens at the altar? That sacrifices are offered. The substitute is sacrificed there. And it's taken from that altar. That's what that represented. As soon as it touched his lips, he says, your sins are forgiven. They're covered over. And your iniquity is purged. So it may not seem like it, but I'm saying that entire experience, you're all like, man, I hate hearing these messages on holiness. Eh." But I'm saying it's really God's grace through this whole thing, isn't it? That he could see himself for who he is, see God for who he is, and was able to deal with it. That's really God's love. It really is. Because God has got to bring us, unlike the preaching you hear today, your best life now, no, he wants just to see I'm undone now not my best life now, then your best life will come through the grace of God. but He's got to bring us to an end of ourselves before we really appreciate His grace. I'm saying people are singing about grace. Honestly, I don't know if they know what they're talking about. Because they've never been taught the fear of God. They've never been brought into conviction of sin. They've never seen they're going to hell because no one's going to tell them they're going to hell. But when you see all of that, that you're undone, you're doomed, you're going to hell, I'm a wicked sinner, that's what salvation's all about. That is the good news. It really is. Because then, when the gospel comes that, hey, that is you, God's opened your eyes to see who you are and where you're going, then He points, like we said the other day, look at the cross where the snake hangs. There's your salvation. There's your cure. It's not in yourself. And don't kid yourself to think you're somehow okay. No, it's all right there. Judgment had to take place. Your sin has to be judged. You have to be judged. You and me. That's the way it is. Being a true servant of God, it involves, we're seeing here, you've got to see God for who He is. Holy and glorious in majesty. Because I'm getting back to these seraphim. Look at how they worship the Lord. They're sinless. They've never sinned. They're unfallen. We are Fallen creatures. And yet, look at how they worship. They cannot look at the glory of God, even though they're sinless. What does that tell us about him? And their two of their other wings are covering their feet in humility. And all the time, though, they're exalting the Lord. Holy, 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 they're saying back and forth, is the Lord God Almighty. His glory covers the earth, they're saying. And so do we worship like that? We get to recognize who God is. And then we can recognize who we are. People, like I said, that are poor in spirit. On our best day, we are not anywhere near close to where we should be with the Lord. And when you do that, when you see that there's this great gulf between the holy God and us, and that you're doomed, well, hey, that's where he wants you to be. Because then you can receive the grace of God that will bridge that gap between us. Isn't that what it is? The blood and then you see, man, God himself came to die to bridge that gap. That I don't have to be doomed. I don't have to be woed. And that's when you'll appreciate grace. So Isaiah 6 has to be connected to Isaiah 53, doesn't it? We know what Isaiah 53 is all about. And I'll tell you, in between those two chapters, I read a guy said, I thought this was good. You know what's in between Isaiah 6 and 53? is Isaiah 40, verse 2. And you know what it says there? He says, Israel, you've received double for your sins. Well, that's not good news. Because punishment doesn't bring back relationship. All punishment does is death. The only punishment for sin is death. That is not good news there. They received double for their sins. That's just justice. So how has God kept all of His people from being wiped out with doom and destruction? It's Isaiah 53. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. He had done no violence and neither was any deceit in His mouth. So... Our Lord had no unclean lips, but we did. All of us had unclean lips, no deceit in His mouth. And yet it goes on to say, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise Him. He has put Him to grief on our behalf. Does that get old to hear that? He died on the altar of Calvary. So the live coal, if you want to put it this way, of His blood could purge our lips, our heart, and the Bible says our consciences, that we can come before the Lord in a new and living way. If Without that, we'd have no way there. We would be woe and undone. So now, because of that, we can partake of God's holiness, is what the Bible says. And God can now say to us, be ye holy. We can't be holy as he is holy. He says, be ye holy for I am holy. We can be a partaker of His holiness, and that is a good thing. Peter tells us, we sing this song, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession that we should proclaim the praises of Him who has called us out of darkness and into His marvelous light. Amen? That's a high note to that song because that's what He's done. And so we can proclaim then, like the seraphim, the praises of Him, holy, 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 the whole earth is full of His glory. I'm going to end on this. I was at a revival conference a few years back. And the people there were more conservative. They played a lot of hymns, and they didn't play rocky hymns. They just played a lot of hymns. So I remember one guy was complaining. People were complaining. They, they didn't think that music was lively enough for them or whatever. And so the worships were okay, but we had one time when they would always play like two or three songs after the speaker was over. And so we had a meeting when the speaker was over, and the, the main emphasis was on holiness at this revival seminar. I'd say at least half the people left, left the meeting and didn't stay for the songs. And the song leader played, holy, holy, holy. And I'm saying, I've not been in too many worship services like that. Now, I've been in some really good ones here, but I'm just saying, when that song took place, because I think we were all more of one accord with the people that have left, it was probably better they left. And I'm saying God's presence and spirit fell down and I have not experienced a worship like that. And the reality of His holiness and His presence, it's just you couldn't put it into words. But it was just an experience you can have. There's been times when Through chastisement, I've been well aware of God's holiness and my sinfulness, and it's put a fear in me and an absolute awe of Him in my heart. And it's something, I don't know how you would describe that. It's something I think you just have to experience. But it's something God does for you where He reveals His holiness in ways to you, that it just puts that awe and that dread. I've had times where I've heard sermons where I have read sermons where something comes over me that it's just God in His presence and revealing His holiness. And it puts a healthy fear in you of Him. And that's what we need. And we need to have our worship to where we are of one accord and we are bowing down like they're here and holy, holy, holy. And we're experiencing that. That's my prayer. And I hope it's your all's prayer too. Amen. And that's where we'll end. I'm saying God is holy, and there is a beauty to His holiness. There really is. It's not something to be avoided or dreaded. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank You, Lord, once again for Your Word. Sometimes we have to labor through listening to teaching, Father, but I ask that You'll cause this Word to find root in our hearts, that we can think about it, think about it during the week of Your holiness and our relationship to You. And I ask You'll make this real, that things that are said will come back. And you'll put a fear and a true respect for your holiness, your majesty and your glory in our hearts and in our lives and in our midst here, Lord. And that we can be united around the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done. That's my prayer for our church here. And I pray that in Jesus name. Amen.